0: With me today to open up, and I don't think there's a more relevant speaker, is Peter Zihan. and someone that I follow because of his view of what means, what, what's happening around the world. He's a geopolitical expert, writer, commentary. I strongly recommend his books if you have it, or even just listen to a podcast, or even get the chance to hear from one of the most profound speakers that is focused on geopolitical events. His recent book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And his discussion is going to be about what's happening geopolitically that has a lot of currents that have been building up over time. So with me, I'd like to welcome Peter on the stage. So give a round of applause to Peter.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome, how are you? It's great to be here.
0: So Peter, lots of conversation. This is a room of folks that globalization impacts has a pr- pr- uh, tremendous impact on their business on their livelihood. Talk a little bit about what your views around globalization are.
1: <laughs> okay. So um, globalization is kind of weird. Uh, it's a very new concept. Uh, historically speaking, it used to be that the cost of transport was usually 90 to 99% of the cost of any sort of good or product. Uh, now we're well below 1%. That didn't just accidentally happen. It required a significant change of condition. Now, There are a number of reasons why that 99% number has held for most of human history, but mostly it was about security. Uh, Just think about the things that we move today. Think if you had one bad actor, whether it was a foreign government or a pirate or whatever it happened to be, you know, arg, uh, (laughs) all they have to do is interrupt one step of one supply chain one time, and that's enough to break the entire system down, and that was the norm for history. So in order to change our condition so that wasn't the case, we needed to remove every single naval power from the board. And we had to make sure that there was no alternative economic model that would compete with it. And that took the massive destruction of World War II. And at the end of the war, the Americans decided it wasn't globalization that they needed. It was that they needed an alliance of cannon fodder. We needed people who were willing to stand up to a nuclear armed Red Army at the height of its power and form a line to protect the free world, and no one was going to do that for free. So we created the globalization model where we used our Navy, the only one aside from the Brits to survive the war, to patrol the global ocean so that anyone could interface with anyone else at any time and access our market. And that created the basis for what we now recognize as trade. And we've been playing on that for 75 years. Uh, The problem is that, number one, because for us, it was always a bribe that was linked to our security. And we now define our security differently, have been for five presidents now. uh, We've been backing away bit by bit. But I would actually argue that even if, even if we got a different president tomorrow that broke with the last five, like, no, no, globalization is what we want. It's what we want to keep. It's already too late because part of what made globalization work is there was only one global Navy, and that is not the environment we're in anymore. We have steadily since the Cold War retooled our naval forces to be very, very super heavy, super, excuse me, super carrier heavy. Within the decade, we're going to have 14 super carriers. And if you want to knock off a country, that's exactly what you want. But if you want to patrol the global oceans, you need like 800 destroyers, and we only have 70. So At current rates of naval build-out, we would not be able to provide the coverage we did during the Cold War this century. So we know that the security paradigm that has allowed multimodal shipping and multi-step manufacturing supply chains is already gone. We're just waiting for that one pirate to take the wrong ship. And then this all unwinds.
0: So Peter, why would a country or a pirate, as you say, actually disrupt the entire thing?
1: Well, everyone is going to be looking at this from their own point of view and their own interests. And if you look at the three... Three of the five countries in the world that are most dependent on maritime transport for exports, China, Russia, Iran, are on the list. And so they all have a vested interest from their point of view in disrupting their own neighborhoods. China, in order to expand its uh, field of reach, the Russians and the Iranians, in order to get better prices for their energy exports. But they forget that beyond the horizon, if they do what they want within the horizon, then beyond the horizon, nothing about their system functions anymore. But more importantly, it's just the United States. We no longer identify global economic growth as part of our security paradigm, and we haven't since Herbert Walker Bush.
0: So when I think about the fact that China's built has really benefited greatly from the American
1: system, Hugely. The system you described, arguably more than anyone else, why would they disrupt it? It feels like it's sort of economic suicide. Well, there's a whole lot of things going on in China. We can go into deep in, in, into that as you want. Uh, But the Chinese economic model is failing independent of what's going on with the American relationship, independent of what's going on with globalization. Uh, Their population is in freefall. They're now now admitting that they overcounted their population by over 100 million people. And all of the missing millions are age 40 and under. So they know that this is their last decade as an economic power anyway. Uh, they also know that they're probably going to be the country that suffers the most from the Ukraine war, with the, obviously the exception of Ukraine, because they're at the end of all these supply lines, and it doesn't take much disruption anywhere in the system for the one them to be the ones left holding the whole bag. And then, of course, their, their hyper-financialization model, which is basically they, uh, they print currency in order to put octane into any sort of economic activity so that the population is employed. It's not very efficient, but it gets growth. They've now taken that further and farther than any other country in history. And every other country in history who's ever tried this has eventually had a crash. So they're going to be wrestling with all of these, three, all these things in addition to a failing political system. Uh, it all comes to a head this decade. And if we're moving into an environment where growth is no longer part of the Chinese story, And the only way that they can kind of hold the center and keep the CCP in charge is authoritarianism. Then all of a sudden, trade doesn't look nearly as exciting to them. And if you look at the folks that uh, Xi appointed to be in his Polar Bureau in the last couple of weeks, you know, they're all yes men. None of them are technocrats. None of them know much about economics or trade or manufacturing at all. It's a leadership. All that's left of the leadership now is control. And if they crash the economy and if it collapses by two thirds and they have a famine, but it allows the CCP to remain in charge, then from their point of view, that's probably worth it. So you think about the fact that they've funded, they've
0: benefited greatly from the flow of US dollars into their economy to really fund all of this infrastructure that they've built out. It seems like if you're trying to can maintain that status as a world power, doing it is inevitably going to fail at some point.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't think they're, they have their eyes on world power dump anymore. Uh, they may have a lot of vessels, um, about 600 versus R300, but about 90% of them would fit in this room. I mean, not all at the same time. Don't be dumb. <laughs> um, but like one at a time. They're, they're small. They have very limited range. They can't make it past the first island chain. So in any sort of measuring contest where you're trying to evaluate how far they can really go, you know, they can, they can make it to central Vietnam. I'm sorry. The world power that is not.
0: So what about Taiwan? Oh, boy. They've gone out and said that it's rightfully theirs. Yeah. They have demonstrated a willingness at the top level to make very irrational, what we would use irrational, uh, authoritarian uh, decisions that are somewhat suicidal. Is this inevitable? Is Taiwan inevitable in terms of them going out and trying to attack it?
1: I'm going to be on the minority on this topic. Um, I, I don't think a war is imminent or inevitable. In fact, I don't think it's going to happen at all. Um, the Chinese look at Taiwan in a number of similar ways to the way the Russians look at Ukraine. And so the Taiwanese have used a series of assumptions, excuse me, the Chinese have used a series of assumptions to prepare for the war. Because You don't just like snap your fingers and, oh, we're going to do it tomorrow. No, no, you're this decades of preparation. And they've always counted on the Russians to kind of be the canary in the coal mine. So assumption number one, it's going to be an easy fight. Well, you can walk from Moscow to Kiev, and the Ukrainians had only been preparing for this war for eight years. You have to swim to Taipei, and the Taiwanese have been preparing for 45. Also, the U.S. is a naval power, and Taiwan's an island. So, assumption one, gone. Uh, Assumption two, Russian weapons are pretty good, so let's steal all their IP and clone them for our entire military. They're now having a $2 trillion of buyer's remorse. Uh, Assumption number three, Russia is way too important to the world, so no one is going to sanction them if the war happens. Well, crap. And, you know, say what you will about the Russian economy, it is wildly inefficient. But it is the world's largest producer and exporter of energy and food products. It's like, you know, China is the world's largest importer of both. You take the sanctions that are on Moscow and you put them on Beijing, you get a deindustrialization collapse complete with a famine that kills 500 million people in less than 18 months. I mean, it's, there, there's no math here. Uh, but I think the thing that has really terrified the, mo- the most is the, uh, is the, is the, the uh, boycotts. It's one thing when Brussels or Washington or Tokyo says that you can't do this, you can't do that. But when Halliburton emerges as the voice of morality (laughs) holy crap it's the chinese economic model is based on access to foreign markets and foreign technology you remove that there is nothing left and so every assumption that they have made for 40 years has been proved wrong in the last eight months now normally normally this is where the chairman would take all his smart people and put them in the back room with some beer and pizza and say don't come out until i have a plan b uh, but as part of his purges, he has killed all those people. So there's, there's no capacity left in the Chinese system to adapt to change or in circumstance or otherwise. And so the only reason I can see that Xi might give the order and attempt a at war anyway, even almost certainly knowing he would lose and it would be the end of China as a strategic power, like in a matter of days, because this is a naval fight. The only reason I can see is that if you have already lost all faith in your economic expansion— and you know that the lie that you've been feeding your people for the last several years is, is just that. There is something to be said for choosing the time and the place of a patriotic conflict so that you can write the narrative. That's the only reason, though. And, and that means, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about that 500 million dead Chinese from famine. If that might be a price they are willing to pay in order to retain power. But that is not a China that matters to the world. I mean, they've done this before, right? They've had, in history... Oh, multiple collapses, yes. ...reckless policies. Oh, God, yeah. There's dozens of examples of how China can go to hell very quickly. Uh, and it does usually end with civilizational collapse.
0: So the the dependency we have in the West on China, mm-hmm. what does this mean for... If they're not going to attack Taiwan, but they're becoming very insular, what does that mean for us?
1: Well, there, there's two areas where the United States in specific has a degree of dependency. Uh, one is materials processing, uh, primarily in metals, but not exclusively. Uh, and then second, of course, is manufacturing, most notably in electronics. Uh, those, I, those are, I don't mean to belittle those. If we're going to attempt the Green Revolution at all, we need the lithium. Um, if we want to do any sort of large-scale construction, we need the steel. We need the aluminum and everything else. Um, the advantage we have in the materials processing is most is, is based on technologies from the 1910s and 1920s. It's not hard. It's not really expensive. It does take time to build it out. And so the faster the Chinese break happens, the more of an adjustment period we're going to have. Um, But I would argue that we are going to get there anyway, and so I would rather see us starting sooner rather than later. Uh, As for electronics manufacturing, there's this weird disconnect between fact and reality in the United States on what the reality of Chinese manufacturing is. Uh, I think the best way to explain it is to look at their semiconductor industry, because everything is kind of a derivative of that these days. So the high-end chips that you put into computers or cell phones, they don't make any of those. They import 100% of them. Those come from Taiwan, Korea, the United States, and Japan. The mid-grade chips that go into cars and freight services and power management system and aerospace, they don't make any of those either. They import 100% of those. Those come from Malaysia and (laughs) Thailand. The low-end, your singing dryer uh the the chip in your watch that beeps when you you're whisking things just right uh your your uh, your margarita machine internet of things that's china stuff that's all china but they don't make any of the machinery that's necessary to make it that's all imported as are the tools that operate those machines as is the software that those machines run on as is the staff that manage those facilities and, you know, say what you will about Joe Biden. Two weeks ago, he basically killed the the Chinese tech industry because he said you can't import the high end or the medium end or the equipment, the tools, the software make the low end. And by the way, if you're an American working in that sector, you have to choose between your citizenship and your job. And within 24 hours, every American citizen in the industry was either transferred abroad or quit. It, it's it's over. We're just now waiting for the Chinese to decide how they want to die because all they can do now is assembly and assembly is not hard and since their population bomb is so far advanced they're not even the low-cost location for that anymore they're not competitive in any manufacturing sector anymore before the tech kill so we need to rapidly come to the conclusion in this country that we need to double the size of the industrial plant The sooner we do that, the better off we'll be. That's a wildly different freight system, because we're talking about the end of transoceanic shipping, either because of security or because the Chinese and, and another topic, the Germans are vanishing from the face of the earth, and our choice is to do it within North America or not have the stuff. I would rather have the stuff. So, what does this mean? So, we're shifting away from
0: Asia. You mentioned Europe having its own set of challenges. Does the world once again become America. Does the, the center of the economic power shift back to North America?
1: Uh, you could argue that it never really left, but I think what we're looking at is a lot more structural. Uh, part of globalization was we pay the defense costs that allow your economies to advance for the first time in your history. In many cases, and uh, that's been seventy five years. That's the world we all know, and specifically, we've all become used to the last thirty five years where the Chinese entered the system with a billion workers, pushing down the cost of manufactured goods, and the collapse of the Soviet system dumped an empire of raw materials on the system at the same time. And so that 30-year period since 1990, when we've had cheap, cheaper and cheaper and cheaper manufactured goods and low inflation in commodity prices, you know, this, this is like the sum total of most of our business experience. This is the most atypical period in human history. It was always going to last for a historical moment. And the historical moment is now ending. We now have to do something a little bit more normal. And in a world where you're going to get a little bit more normal, the two factors you need to look at are demographics and geography. Um, Actually, can we bring up the map? That's a great, good spot. Yeah. Uh, What you're looking at here is just a map of the waterways and the farmlands of the United States. Those blue lines, the greater Mississippi, the Intracoastal, all the attached rivers, that is more miles of navigable waterway than the rest of the planet combined. It's about 20,000 miles. I'm sorry, about 13,000 miles. Um, We have the lowest cost for internal transport on the planet. uh, And it should be lower because of the Jones Act. We basically told all foreign... Foreigners that they couldn't participate in our water transport. Uh, you guys, I think, can imagine what would happen to trucking and trains and aerospace if we did that. Oh my God, what a shit show that would be. <laughs> but we've done it for water. So we've taken our single biggest geographic advantage, and like, yeah. And now water transport's only like single digits of our total transport. If we just brought that back uh, in a meaningful way, uh, the pressure on every other part of the transportation system would lessen. And the economic explosion we would see at any place you see blue on this map would have runaway growth, especially since we're in an environment where we need to double the size of the industrial plant. It would all go to the places that are blue. But Peter, we don't have the labor to industrialize. Oh, yeah. So uh, (laughs) uh, again, we can have stuff or not. That's the choice here. Uh, How we get there, that's the problem. Now, obviously, things like automation can help, but The labor crunch that we're seeing here is nothing compared to what the rest of the world is dealing with. Uh, Let's put up another graphic. Can you go to the the second of the bar graphs, please? One more. There we go. Okay. So this is our demographic structure here. Uh, You've got the boomers at the top. They're the ones who are retiring. On average, the boomers will have retired in the fourth quarter of this year. This is not a hazy future thing. This is the here and now. And they're being replaced by the Zoomers there at the bottom. They're the smallest generation we've ever had. So this calendar year, we're looking at a shortage of 400,000 workers. But all the Zoomers are already born. We know exactly what the inflow to the market is going to look like for the next 20 years. They're already here. We know that that 400,000 shortage is going to increase every year for at least the next 12. And then it'll probably peak at about a million shortage in 2034. So, you know, if I could give you any advice, higher, 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 higher now, I don't care what it costs because it's going to be more next year and the year after and the year after until we get to 2034. And then it'll start to fall back probably. Uh, But give me one more click so you can see what everybody else looks like. Fuck. (laughs) It's like we always knew that the German economic model was going to end this decade, independent of the Ukraine war. We always knew that the Chinese had the fastest aging society in history before the data revisions. This is it. It's us, it's France, it's New Zealand. We're the only countries that have a semi-normal demographic structure. And, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to guess that the French are going to keep it to themselves. (laughs) And New Zealand is like four people. So it's, you know, we either have the stuff when we build it ourselves or we don't have the stuff because it's not coming from anywhere else. So we have a choice between high inflation and high growth that ends us with supply chains that are closer, simpler, uh, employed by locals, more productive, greener, more reactive, and immune to international pressure, or high inflation and no stuff. Those are our choices. This is not a hard discussion. So is Mexico, is
0: is that our source of material?
1: Yeah, well, actually, yeah, go ahead and advance the Mexican graphic if you would. There we go. Oh, thank God for Mexico. (laughs) Now you'll notice it's not perfect. When you get down to about the 30 year olds, it goes straight down because Mexico is simply the most recent country to follow this pattern. So it it used to be uh, in the pre-globalized world that most people lived on farms. Uh, But as you industrialize, you urbanize, you move into the city, you have fewer kids and eventually you get more of a chimney Graphics like we have, or in the case of places like Germany or China, it starts to invert. In Mexico, started this process just like everyone else, but they didn't start this process until about 1995. So that's where it goes straight down. The birth rate dropped by half. They never recovered. They probably never will. And net migration to the United States has been negative for the last 12 of the last 13 years. But they are the last one to f- start down this road of the major countries in the world. The last one. Uh, Now, they have the healthiest demography in not just the rich world, but in their own uh, income class. They're they're better than Brazil. They're better than Turkey. They're better than India. Uh, And if they keep aging at this rate, they will become older on average than the average American in the 2050s, maybe 2060s. A lot of things can happen between here and there. Uh, But we have the slowest aging demography of the advanced world and the advanced developing world. And Mexico second this is exactly the sort of partner that we want. So we can have a system that's driven by finance, that's driven by high-skilled labor, that has excellent transport systems, that partners with a country that is lower on the development index, but can help us with the low and the mid-end manufacturing. And this is really important for things like automotive and aerospace and electronics. Uh, and then we will have to tap a few places here and there around the world. But for the most part, we can keep this within North America. We're within the Western Hemisphere at worst. No one else has anything that's even close to that. But the sort of transport you integrate with a country like Mexico or, say, Colombia, which I think will do well, or Cuba, which I think ultimately will come in from the cold, is different than these massive container vessels that collide the Pacific. And it's a different way of operating. And the sooner we start the transition, the lower inflation it's going to be. Yeah. Is it fair to say that we've seen the
0: peak container volume? Yeah, I think so. And so your contention is that now
1: it's that trucking and rail transport between Mexico: For and Mexico, yes. Uh, if we can reform Jones, we can bring the manufacturing back on the water in the United States in a very big way. And Mexico has now become so advanced uh, on a labor productivity measure, Mexico is now ahead of Canada, which sorry, Canadians, but that's where we are. Um, which means that Mexico now needs a low-cost, low-wage partner. Isn't that hilarious? It's like Mexico basically needs a 1980s Mexico. Um, Colombia and Cuba are the obvious candidates. They're close. We already have a free trade agreement with Colombia. I cannot think of a better way to destroy Castro's legacy than to integrate with it. Oh, my God. It's like the whole thing would just be wiped away in months. Uh, That's my vote, but whatever. Um, But it's a much simpler system that is reliant on things close to home. Because if you want to have a trade deal with, say, China or the European Union, you know, you negotiate among near peers there. It's kind of a pain in the ass. And then there's always pushback. But when you integrate with a place like Colombia that's kind of desperate and happy to be part of the club, it's a much easier process. And so you don't need to do things at scale to the same degree. A small container ship is fine. You don't need the massive stuff. So,
0: Peter, one of the big counterarguments about Mexico – is that it's an unstable country sure. with the cartels. How, do you, how does someone build a manufacturing plant or a supply chain where you have these external actors, not state actors, but external actors? Maybe they're, they're working together. How do you contend with that? Is Mexico going to come into the system in a way that, that is going to create stable supply chains?
1: Well, let me give you pros, pros and cons. Um, pros, I'd say we're, we've already shown that it can be done. Uh, the Texans have been doing this for 30 years now. Uh, half of our trade with Mexico is via Texas. Uh, it's not that the cartels are not a real threat, and it's not that as long as we love our cocaine, we're not going to keep fueling them because that's exactly where this comes from. It's not The cartels did not just magically appear in Mexico. They're, they're kind of at least half our fault. Uh, But the places where there's violence is only 1% or 2% of the country at any given time. So if you have a security staff who can keep their ear to the ground and knows what they're doing, you know when the violence is coming your way. And at the moment, the cartels have not expressed an interest in interfering with trade because it's not to their benefit. Uh, The Sinaloa, which is the most powerful one, would see that specifically as a death blow to drug trafficking, which is their reason to be and the second most powerful one the Jalisco new generation sees violence as more of an end as opposed to a means to the end and going after trucking and manufacturing doesn't get them anything i don't want to say the risk is zero because it's absolutely not but they don't see a business model for interfering with trade aside from just wanting to get access to the plazas Uh, in terms of how you do it uh, where are my texans there's got to be a few of you in here one in the back wow shy texans okay (laughs) so this is where they are (laughs) uh northern mexico is desert and highland which means there aren't a lot of farms there aren't a lot of small towns so the normal ebb and flow of populations that we have in the united states and canada it's very different here when a city starts to develop and really industrialize in a big way and get into manufacturing they start drawing labor from other communities that are nearby in northern mexico there are no other communities uh So pros and cons. The pro is that there's usually just a handful of families who run the entire metro and that metro stops at the edge of the desert and that's it. Now, that means that as a American, you can go south with your needs, find out who's in charge, make friends, and you will probably leave in a few days with a series of supply contracts because they represent the power board. The mayor's office, the tax office, the university, the local labor unions it's all in one little package. It's very oligarchic. We, we don't like that here, but wow, is it easy to interface with when you want to do business? You'll leave with those deals, probably a godchild and absolutely a splitting hangover because you're, you're part of the family now. And the Texans have been doing this for 30 years. But once you've gobbled up all the labor for each metro, you're done. They're, 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 the Mexicans aren't mobile like we are. Because they don't have those secondary communities in the north. Well, there's only 130 130 million Mexicans. About a quarter of those are in the northern states that we have the most experience with. And I would argue that the Texans have already gobbled up about 70 to 75 percent of that labor. So there's a limited window for everyone else to get in on northern Mexico, where the logistics are simpler, where the politics are simpler. Once that is gobbled up, and at the rate we're going, that's in less than two or three years, we then have to go into central Mexico, which is a much different environment. And now you're dealing with people like AMLO. Now you're dealing with not so much oligarchs, but a more connected community that has its own weight. It's not that that can't be productive. It's wildly productive, but it's a much more complicated launch process that it requires a lot more negotiation, a lot more government involvement. So, Peter, you sound incredibly bullish on North America.
0: Mm-hmm. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about this transition to EVs. So is it, oh, I thought you were
1: going to say Canada. Okay, yeah, sure.
0: EVs? <laughs> no, electric vehicles, in terms of the transition, which we don't have a lot of those materials here. Yeah. How, do we, how, do we, how do we navigate that?
1: Yeah, it's not going to happen. As a short version. Okay. It just can't happen. Uh, leaving aside the processing question, which is a two-year fix... Um, russia is one of the world's top three suppliers of copper of nickel of cobalt uh, and of aluminum and all of those are going to zero so we're going to be in a position very soon where we have to decide which parts of the green transition are worth doing because we will not have the materials to even attempt all of them greening the grid just greening the grid and putting up a bunch of wind and solar that's going to expand the size of the grid by at least half probably double evs would be another doubling And if you're looking at this on a carbon production transition period, um, putting up a wind tower, assuming you put it in a place where the wind blows, important detail, uh, obviously has an immediate carbon impact. An EV does not because an EV draws from the grid in its current form. And for the most part, the processing facilities required to build the EV on the first place are incredibly carbon intensive. And most vehicles running on most grids are going to take in excess of a decade to pay back the carbon debt. Data for heavier equipment, things like semis or forklifts or whatever, doesn't exist yet because those products don't exist yet. But it's probably two to three decades. So what does this mean in terms of
0: when we have to get our energy here in the United States to to obviously deliver freight, to survive? We have such a focus on green transition. We've what ha- seen what's happened in Europe. How do we, how do we navigate this?
1: We need to break down through in material science before we do it at scale for, for transport. Now, the United States and the Great Plains has the world's best wind zone, and the American Southwest from roughly central California down to central Texas is the second best solar zone. I'm not suggesting we can't do any of it but I'm suggesting that in a constrained environment where we have to make choices because the inputs are limited, I'm just saying that EVs in their current form will not make the cut. And you said, obviously, semis take so much more battery power. Assuming they work, which we don't know yet.
0: Right. Well, we hope to find out this year when... when...
1: 200,000, right, by the end of the year, right? (laughs)
0: Yeah, He's got a big hurdle. Peter, inflation has been a big topic, continues to be a big topic in a world where Globalization is shifting or ending, or we're deglobalizing, whatever the appropriate term is. What does that mean from an
1: inflationary standpoint? Oh, yeah, I got an answer for that. You're not going to like it. Okay, so um, we've got labor pressure at all points. Chinese manufacturers are going away. German manufacturers are going away. Russian materials are going away. The boomers may be retiring, but the millennials, their kids, are at the height of their consumption, suggesting a return to the inflation that we had in the 70s and 80s. And we need to double the size of the industrial plant at the same time. Every disinflationary trend of the last 75 years has flipped and every inflationary trend is back all at the same time. We are looking at nine to 15% inflation for at least the next five years. That's hardwired in, that's independent of anything the Fed does. That's just reacting to the strategic overall structural environment. Now at the end of that five year period, if we have succeeded in building out the industrial plant, we go back to a much tamer system that will be lower for longer because the supply chains will be local, the materials processing will be local, and we'll be following our own labor metrics, which will have evolved because we'll have had to do a lot more with AI and a lot more with automation than we currently have, especially as we bring in things like electronics manufacturing. We won't have a choice. Um, if we fail to do that, then the 9 to 15% inflation continues and we have product shortages. Uh, it's, from my point of view, it's a really clear path. Uh, the alternative is just to go through the worst of it and get none of the benefits. So you're suggesting
0: what j Powell is trying to do right now is just a lost cause.
1: Uh, I I hesitate to criticize policymakers, especially when they're in difficult environments. He's using the tools he has to deal with the problem he understands. The issue is... Where we're moving is not just a problem of demand, it's more of a problem of supply. And until we've built out the replacement supplies, we don't have monetary policy that is capable of dealing with the issue that we're struggling with. He's using the tool that he has, which regulates demand. He's trying to get inflation under control. I understand that because high inflation over a long period of time wrecks productive capacity in the long run. But ultimately, productive capacity is what we have to build out. That is primarily a job for fiscal policy. And on that, we've had two, three, four, we had four presidents in a row who were uh, um, on fiscal policy. Biden is by far the most pragmatic of the bunch. And while there are a lot of things, especially in energy, that I'm like, "Eh, that's really a horrible idea, Uh, for the first time in 13 years, 14 years now, we actually have a president who's trying to enact policy, which is kind of novel from my point of view. We actually have a guy who's president who actually seems to want to be president for a change. Uh, And we are getting bits and pieces of what is adding up to an industrial policy. And I might not agree with all of the pieces of it. I certainly don't. But seeing someone try, I give points for. So, Peter, sort of closing thoughts, I'd like to leave here a little bit more optimistic
0: for the folks that are in the room that are building the technology around the future of supply chain of sure. freight. What should they be thinking about investing in that v- their businesses can benefit from this shift back to North America?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, if you want to play the political card, start lobbying your Congress people to uh, reform Jones because you want to talk about virgin territory that has nothing but upside, that would be it. Uh, number two, we have failed to digitize at the same pace that we have industrialized the world. And anything that makes you more modular and more capable and allows you to adapt more quickly is something I think is going to give an outsized advantage. Because remember, we're we're not dealing with the old system here of one part comes from Malaysia and one part from China and it's assembled in Vietnam and, you know, all, all that intermodal stuff. We're going to have fewer supply chain steps closer to home. And the competitive nature of that is going to be very different from just kind of waiting for it to show up on a dock in Busan and then making the trip and then distribution here. We're going to have the need to do everything that is done in Asia in fewer steps, but right in our own world is going to be massive. That's not just an issue of capacity increase. That's an awareness of what the cargo is on a micro level within each container so that anyone can go to anything at any time and find out the best way to root within the system. That's going to require a lot more information tech integrated into the space. And that's one of those things with the early manufacturing already coming back in a very big way. The demand is therefore now. Uh, and make sure it's in Spanish as well, because you're going to have to do that on both sides of the borders multiple times for each product set. And you would also suggest that robotics with that would be robotics automation. Robotics is potentially part of the solution. I mean, I I don't want to micromanage you guys. Excuse me. The problem with robotics is that it's very expensive. The digitization, not so much, but robotics and, and physical automation is expensive. And it doesn't require you just to pay the money once you also then have to pay for the programming and the updating of the system. And so when I think of automation and robotics and manufacturing, will that be part of the solution? Yes, but it's not a fix-all and it won't be for you guys either. Uh, but digital awareness of what the cargo is at any time so that anyone can know exactly where the supply chain is would be great. So like think if one of those big container ships, one of those, you know, Triple E's, uh, got hit tomorrow off Japan, it would take us months to figure out what was on it. Uh, when you're dealing with domestic or North American transport, you're talking primarily trucks and rail. That's a lot smaller of a nibble and a lot better laboratory for figuring out how to digitize the supply chain. Well, Peter, really appreciate your time today, everyone.
0: Peter, give Peter a hand.
1: Peter, you have a I, book out. What I do? What? Th- tell us a little about the book. Uh, the title of the book is "The End of the World Is Just the Beginning," and it charts the story of how globalization brought us to where we are and how everything, transport included, uh, will reform on the backs of this transition that we're in the middle of. I
0: I strongly recommend it. It's a fantastic read. Peter, a lot to think about. Appreciate your time today.
1: Pleasure.